Hello, mi gente. This is episode five, and we're talking about Sansa Revolution and Descent in El Sur. While I will talk about the experiences and stories of Chile and Argentina, I also want to put this in a frame to think about how popular culture helps resolve or work through some of the historical traumas that have existed in this region. So we're going to talk about the Dirty War, which I know it's a weird name because what war is clean, but the Dirty Wars that happened in the Southern Cone were happening during the Cold War in the U.S., and that is not coincidental. But basically, it was a war that the government fought against its own citizens, citizens that they branded subversive or dangerous because they were young, because they were different, because they basically were challenging the status quo. In all sense and purposes, this time period was a time period in which the world saw state-sponsored state terrorism, right? That is what was happening. There was no declaration of a war. The citizens really did not know what was happening. And really, at the end of the day, when you think about what was happening up north, the presidents, Ford, Carter, Reagan, they knew that they were citizens that were being disappeared, that there was violence but they did nothing to stop it. And let us not forget, the World Cup was played in Argentina in 1978 in the midst of the dirty war. Now, when I say dirty war, what was happening? All types of atrocities, injustices, which we're still trying to make sense of today. So last episode, we talked about Brazil in specifics, but also looking at the work of Boal, um, who was basically harassed and, and and jailed um, because his ideas were challenging the status quo with theater of the oppressed. But the same could be said about new song in Chile, Rock Nacional in Argentina. And that's what I want to talk about today. For me, when I talk about Argentina, because of the proximity to my own personal life, it's really difficult because you continue to learn new things. That's the thing. Hindsight, people say it's 2020, but in history, in Latin America, hindsight becomes almost uh, like the ultimate spotlight, right? It puts things into focus. It reveals things that were hidden. It, it, it denounces also the wrongs, right? Because now we know that disappearances, even though it was sponsored by the state, was wrong. The state was wrong. In Argentina, from 1976 to 1983, there was a military dictatorship that relied on widespread torture and disappearances with the purpose of eradicating all political opponents, real or imagined. So they were seeking to conceal the regime's one-sided terror. The right still refers to these years as a dirty war, but the only real way to call a spade a spade is to call it state terrorism and I'll explain why. Political violence was always a feature of the landscape since the early 1970s throughout the region, right? We know from the very beginning these countries that became independent in Latin America did so after also a period of prolonged violence, inequity, and injustices, right? So then now they're independent, these countries throughout the region, 
and they're built on shaky ground, right? There is not a, a surprise when we hear about the corruption in these governments because they weren't necessarily set up to be just, right? They were uh, inclusive and they were always problematic in many ways also because of the relationship the South had with the North, right? The United States has never given something to the region without taking something greater. So let's look at the case of Chile. So Chile had a civil war that lasted eight months in 1891, but it became a democracy, a new one with a constitution in 1925. And in its constitution, it had values of universal suffrage for presidential elections, separation of church and state, even though it was only uh, as of late that divorce was actually legal in, in Chile, which I think it's an interesting thing because if a marriage is a legally binding document that gives you protections by the state, right, then it it should also be your choice to exercise that right to divorce, to break that dissolution. But again, if you think about also some of the other features in Chile um, in the Constitution that were really impactful, you think about mandatory primary education, so compulsory education. And that is something that is going to ensure that the workforce is literate, the future workforce, right? That they have access not only to the tools to build better future, but that it is not only theoretically accessible, but practically as well. But Chile had an economic depression in 1929, and we saw that this was happening throughout the world. There was economic hardship, and that led to another civil war. But then in the late 30s, you have the end of this civil war and you have the radical party that came into rule. And it's a coalition of political groups. They had three presidents from 1938 to 1952 and a period of relative stability. But then comes Salvador Allende. Who's Salvador Allende? Um, you've probably heard of him, especially during 9-11. We talk about Chile's 9-11, right? In the United States, we have we think or commemorate 9-11, what happened, the attack on the Twin Towers, right? But also you had an attack in Chile and both were really attacks on choice. I mean, that's my political inclination speaking, but Allende founded Chile's Socialist Party in 1933 and he'd actually lost the presidential elections in 1952, in 1958, and in 1964. Eduardo Frey wins the election in 1964. There was rising inflation and unemployment, social unrest was the norm. They nationalized But it's important to know that he instituted radical left-wing reform. And to pacify the army, he elected generals to the cabinet, including Augusto Pinochet. He's become prolific, right, in the global imaginary. And when we think of dictatorships in the southern cone, his face is the one I think of immediately, right? So two weeks later, after elected in September 11th, Pinochet led a coup and basically Allende was murdered. Now, prior to the coup, there was horrible inflation at 238%. There was a large black market because basically the formal sector, the prices were not 
reachable for many people. So then you create a black market where you barter or you commodify things that perhaps don't necessarily get into the market. And these are spaces also that lead to a lot of crime and deviancy because people are just trying to survive. And so that also brings about strikes, food lines, political polarization between left and right. And so let's talk about Pinochet in specific and his rule between 1973 and 1989. So Pinochet, he basically led state-sponsored terror for national security and to protect against the communist threat. And he abducted, tortured, disappeared subversives. And the economy didn't improve. And there was a new constitution in 1980 that gave Pinochet eight more years. And in the first hours of dictatorship, thousands were rounded up and placed in a stadium. Many were tortured. They were transferred to the national stadium, sent to concentration camps and detention centers. Anyone perceived as a threat to new power was the enemy. So on September 12, 1973, the decree law number five was internal war and the national security doctrine noted that the enemy came from within. So the military announced a state of siege. Legal cases handled through military courts rather than civil courts became the norm. Killing and repression were justified by this security situation. And so imagine 250,000 were arrested and held in custody. And these arrests were arbitrary imprisonment, torture, disappearances, execution, group executions, you had no right to appeal war, counsel sentences, murder, exile, abduction, intimidation, surveillance, and death without trial became the norm in Chile. And in 1975, with this decree law number 521, DINA, the Secret Service, later called CNI, Operation Colombo, was the arm of the government that was going into uh, the home of people who were branded subversive. And it's important to understand also that he who or she or, or they that were subversive or deemed usually were young, right? They were also a lot of artists, uh, students, right? Because these are the places where change happens, right? The change that we want to see on the ground first has to be imagined before it is created. And so this is why, and think about this linkage also with uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, liberation is offered through education. And so that's why it's so dangerous. And this is why it is denied to many. Many human rights groups condemned the actions of the military and openly protested in the 1980s because of the increased suppression. But it was only in 1989 when there was an election, Patricio Elwin, who was a Christian Democrat, was elected into office that then you saw the Pinochet regime no longer had the same control over the state because now you had a democratically elected government. But they had military to deal with. Junta did not go out in disgrace in Chile as they had in Argentina. And I think that's important to think about. One of my best friends when I was in college as an undergrad, his mother, who was so kind, a wonderful lady, it was interesting because she was Chilean and her father was actually in the military. So they had a lot of respect for Pinochet. They had his picture in the house. So imagine me going in there to have eggplant parmesan, which he made, you know, phenomenally, 
and seen the picture of Pinochet like on the family mantle. That was bananas to me. But Pinochet had actually passed an amnesty law in 1978 and he exempted military from prosecution for torture and murder. So there was impunity. He also made himself and eight other senators for life. Uh, with the 1980 constitution. So Pinochet remained commander-in-chief of the army until 1998. And the amnesty case went to the Supreme Court in 1990 and was upheld by the court. The Supreme Court did not reverse any rulings regarding amnesty law until 1997. And then it was only reopening the case involving two individuals a bit later, but it was struck by amnesty law. Alwyn took other measures, though. He offered reparations to the civil population. He ratified human rights treaties. He brought to trial a few cases not covered by the amnesty law. He documented human rights abuses. National Truth and Reconciliation Commission had fact-finding missions and, and, and groups within it, but they had no legal authority. And so in 2025, there were 2,025 murders and disappearances. 90 were killed by civilians, according to the official record, and 164 were killed by political violence. Human rights organizations have much higher numbers, and they will always, because there is the official account given by the state government that also wants to whitewash some of the injustices that they supported or promoted. But at the end of the day, they offered public apologies to the families, and they created commemorations. There was a ceremony in the National Stadium, and it helped to hold a funeral for Agenda. 17 years after his death, they created a memorial wall where they had the names of all the who were lost during this period. There was a peace park in Villa Grimaldi where they had one of the torture centers as a way, again, to maintain this history alive so it is not repeated. But at the same time, if you really think about what truth and reconciliation offers, let's look at the 1996 report of national cooperation for reparations and reconciliation, where the death toll in Chile was actually put to 3,197. And the president, Frey, who was in office in 1994, he actually had a strong hatred between military and civilian governments. Hundreds of trials were underway. There were judicial reforms, decreased military's power in government. And so 1998, Pinochet retired as commander-in-chief, but he's still a senator for life. And then he goes to England in 1998 for medical treatment. And so there he was arrested by Spain for murder of Spanish citizens in Chile. And then he was under house arrest until 2000. But he was released by England for medical reasons because they're actually perhaps more humane, right? We send in the United States children away for life, right? We try them as adults. That's actually why the United States never signed the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is a UN General Assembly convention that has no legally binding consequences, but it's a measure of good will, right? Saying children, we will respect their childhood, but the U.S. doesn't do that. So it's interesting, though, that because Pinochet was detained for killing Spanish citizens, he was also released because he was old and his health was not in good state. So they wanted to ensure that he was taken care of, which is, to me, yes, what human rights would dictate you to do. But the judge, Guzman, he began legal proceedings against him 
and the battle ensued about his medical ability to stand trial and he finally lost his immunity in 2004. So this was six years later. And then you have Bachelet and the presidency of Lagos from 2000 to 2006. So Vatlet's report heard 38,000 testimony and proved 28,000 were actually legitimate, which I'm not sure if that discrepancy of 10,000 is more of a result of not having the manpower to actually be able to, or having the resources rather, to investigate. And so this provided monthly pension and benefits to victims and families. And they discovered Pinochet's international bank accounts while he was under house arrest. And Pinochet died in December 2006. And the fact is, he was never convicted. And then you had Michelle Bachelet, and she and her mother were actually tortured at Villa Grimaldi in 1975, and her father was tortured and died in 1974. And she becomes president of Chile, and this changes the direction of the country because it is revealed and established and confirmed that the U.S. was involved in Chile's coup, and they declassified documents, and the CIA supported Pinochet and were involved in the coup against Allende. Kissinger gave full support to Dirty War in Argentina as well and gave military aid to the dictatorships. So let's talk a little bit now about what was happening in Argentina. The case of Argentina, to me, always has a lot of emotionally charged narratives because I've heard them and read them in books, but I also have very available to me the memories of my family who had to endure and lived their lives during this period in Argentina when there were so many disappearances. My husband was actually born during the dictatorship in 1977. And so it's a strange thing to be born in a country where there was so much death and violence happening, but there were so many silences and a culture of fear, as Juan Coradi, the sociologist, calls it. But I want to talk about the disappearances, los desaparecidos in Argentina. Over 30,000 people disappeared during the Dirty War. Even today, the fate of most is unknown. So they used to do something that was called Vuelo de Muerte, death flights. And during this time, what they would do is they would drug a lot of these young people who were then taken over Rio de la Plata. And they were drugged enough that they were conscious of what was happening, but they were immobilized and they couldn't defend themselves or move their bodies. And then they were thrown from the plane into the waters of Rio de la Plata. This was something that was sanctioned by the government. This is called the death flights, right? Argentina's government until this day still refuses to seek out information about the victims. But those of you who don't know this story, there are a lot of problems in Argentina, but they began, or at least with this particular story, with Juan Perón, the dictator of Argentina since 1946. And although Perón was not the worst dictator in the country's history, if one can quantify that, his rule was marked by inflation, unemployment, and economic ruin, which laid the seeds to what then will become the political violence that we would see. But Juan and Eva, or Evita, 
they were the dictators of Argentina before the dirty war, although they would not call themselves dictators, right? Or they would not be remembered by some as such. But also it's important to note that urban guerrillas and lawless people basically ran rampant and they robbed and looted Buenos Aires. Argentina had crime problems, debt problems, and worst of all, a dictator who could not fix them. And so then you had the junta, the dictatorship, take over. And in 1976, a military-supported terrorist group called the junta took control of the country. They believed that by putting help for the poor and aid to small businesses, the economic problems could be resolved. To make sure they succeeded, the junta then targeted and eliminated anyone who disagreed with them. And so this is what then was known as the death squads, the government sanction, and they moved through the streets, picking up anyone they suspected of disloyalty to the junta. And the junta targeted this certain kind of people, students, teachers, journalists, reporters, priests, and clergy. Remember, there's this whole problematic backstory of our current pope giving the Eucharist to the military junta. They were like, how could he have done that? But if you didn't, you were guaranteed to be die. It's not like there was a, a, a process to, to actually express your disagreements with the government. Because if you did, then you were in, in, in peril. You were in grave danger. It was a mark on your back. And also pregnant women were particularly vulnerable because the junta would disappear them, detain them, have them give birth in clandestine torture centers and rip their children, their newborns, from their families, usually killing the mother, the father, and having them adopted by the military junta. So if you watch the official story, which was um, the Oscar winner of Argentina kind of chronicling this story, this was something that happened and was almost accepted by society, but the acceptance was because of the silence, right? And so the junta practiced censorship, only allowing certain information to reach the people, right? So they controlled all information to also control people's ideas, feelings. They silenced the media. They killed authors and set up censorship committees to read every letter that went in and out of Argentina. But there was resistance. By the 1980s, it was clear that the Junta's economic policies did not work. They have failed to solve the problems of inflation and unemployment. Argentina, in that way, was in very bad shape and at the brink of war. Actually, in 1982, England soundly defeats Argentina in a fictitious war over the Falkland Islands. It was a real war, right? Like, people died, but there was also all of a sudden, a disputed territory. Like Las Malvinas son de Argentina, that is fact. I mean, just geographically, it's if, if it's about proximity at the United Nations, we talked about this quite a de big deal because it's like, well, the Falklands were then taken over by England, but it was a war where they just sent children to die. Many of them were unable to actually even have the basic nutrition to go into war. They didn't have the right weapons. It was awful, awful, awful. And people grew bold. They spoke, started to speak out against the government because it was unfair. Not only did they just disappear young people 
because of these torture and detention centers, but they were now disappearing young people and asking them to die for the nation for a war where they had no stake in it. My husband's father was actually stationed to go leave, to, to fight. And a lot of these settings were awful because, again, Argentina didn't have the military capacity to take on England. And at this end of the day, England, I mean, it was an easy fight for them, but it was cruel, inhumane, and really unnecessary. What you have is a lot of historical resentment now between England and Argentina because of this, right? Until this very day, when the Queen of England died, there was this show that I watched in Argentina and the presenter who was of that generation who went to fight had a two hour plus celebration, right? And he was like, thank God she's dead. In a similar way as you saw her death celebrated in a lot of former colonies, right? So you would not make that immediate association in the case of Argentina, but that resentment for lost lives, right? It's there. And then you have the mothers of La Plaza de Mayo who met without fear in a city square looking for their children, protesting. So because they couldn't necessarily protest, they could, as mothers, go out into the street asking, demanding answers about their children's whereabouts. And so they would put the photos of the children on their chest and walk in a circle. They would circle the plaza because then they couldn't detain them. They were just doing what they had to do as their civic obligations as mothers. And they wanted to know the fate of their loved ones. They met every week. And in 1983, the junta fell to pressure from inside and outside of the government. And then you had Raul Alfonsín who was the first democratically elected president since 1970. And so at the end of the junta, you have a memory wall that has been erected in memorial that disappeared, like in Chile, and it contains over 30,000 plus photos. The full extent of the murders, kidnappings, and tortures may never be known. And I think we're still trying to make sense of it. But again, the same way that individuals who are fighting and they're being oppressed, they're going to find ways to create. So this leads me to talk about the case of Chile, because one of the things that emerges after the dictatorship, it's a clear genre or repertoire of ethnographic and imagined calls to justice. Me mandaron una carta por el correo temprano now, Chilean new song, La Nueva Canción, is a Latin American musical movement corresponding with the period of the 20th century dictatorships. So the question to ask is, how does this Chilean new song contribute to an understanding of Latin American revolutionary activism? So why did this unique sound and theme of La Nueva Canción emerge? Well, in Chile, as you saw, it was a reaction to cultural imperialism. It was a reaction against eroding status of national music, a revitalization and redefinition of popular music, and it was a creation of self-determination. 
Now, when was La Nueva Canción popular and what type of music was actually popular in the U.S.? Well, this was the 1970s, and so you had a lot of exchange of musical genres. But in Chile, La Nueva Canción actually was speaking to a generation through its themes and subjects. It was a hybrid of the past and present. It was a fusion also of indigenous music, indigenous instruments, traditional folk songs, and modern lyrics. And some of the themes included social protest and revolution. It was a commentary on social issues by activists. And many texts are actually not political at all. And there is a respect for all cultures, indigenous, African. And so in 1973, they post-censorship, um, some music and instruments were actually outlawed after the coup. Some music employed use of extended metaphors, and so that became dangerous. And the impact was that there was attack, basically, at popular taste because they expressed the feelings of the people and they were intensely emotional and they function for music in broad political context. And so that is important for us to think about because Nueva Canción gave people also a way to denounce and imagine, right? Denounce the injustice, imagine justice. And we have new song singers also or folkloric singers that did the same thing in Argentina, like Mercedes Sosa. But I would like to talk about Victor Jara. Victor Jara's music actually was one that influenced many other liberation and revolutionary fighters in um, Ireland, for example, but also Victor Jara has been sung in many of the protests that we have had here in the United States against multinational corporations, against, you know, the, the commodification of education. And I want to talk about one particular song, which is El Aparecido, which was about Che Guevara and it was written by Victor Jara. Correle, correle, correla. Por aquí, por allí, por allá. Correle, correle, correla. Correle que te van a matar. Correle, correle, correla. Correle que te van a matar. Correle, correle, correla. It's important for us to also think about what are the images of revolution. So if I were to talk about Inti Ilimani's song, Simón Bolívar, for example, um, it was talking about this revolutionary who they called the George Washington of Latin America. And so you start wondering, what did he accomplish? Why is he so important? So he puts that into the, to the, to the atmosphere, right? But if we think about Che, which has been also a pop cultural reference forever, right? Um, in ways that you could buy his shirt at Urban Outfitters. I don't know what that tells you, but you can make a deduction. And we think about what was his work? What did he accomplish? Where did he live? But I think when you learn about Che Guevara in this song, you listen about his actions and his importance as a 20th century activist and what he pursued, and then you ask yourself what happened to him and his memory. How does Chilean new song contribute to an understanding of Latin American revolutionary activism? Well, we have to think of music as a political expression, and the censorship of music in a period of dictatorship just proves how dangerous and powerful it can be. And the themes of Chilean new song also help foster a new sense of nationalism that was reacting to the cultural imperialism of the time. 
and the eroding status of the people's music. So this is why the instruments that were once deemed indigenous or less modern became almost symbolic of the nation, of its true essence. So even marangas or the guido or the tambor, which or the charango, which is indigenous to the region, or the sampoña, which is are the little flutes, these instruments almost become symbolic representatives of the nation, of a history, of an identity that has been attacked and this is how it survives and thrives in a global market. I remember sitting in a Latin American class anthropology as an undergraduate, and they were asking about the folkloric or national musics of different countries. And so obviously for me, Colombia, Vallenato, but when they said Argentina, people were like, tango. Some people said even bolero. But actually, the folkloric music of Argentina is rock and roll, rock nacional. Rock has existed in Argentina and Latin America since its origins in the 1950s. However, generally, musicians played English languages. By 1967, rock music in Spanish began to take off due to groups in Buenos Aires with moderate success, such as Los Gatos Salvaje or Los Shakers, which are actually originally from Uruguay. In the early 70s, multiple groups would form a spin-off from earlier groups. So you have Alamendra's members will become... Alcalere, Pecado Rabioso, En Color Humano, Charlie Garcia would start multiple bands such as Sui Generi, La Máquina de Hacer Pajaritos, and Seru Giran, a practice that would define Argentine rock until the emergence of Soda Estéreo in the 1980s. By the mid-1980s, Spanish language rock became one of Argentina's main exports. And so, according to Pablo Vila, who is a scholar writing on these movements, during the last dictatorship, 1976 to 1983, he notes that rock music coalesced around youth culture, and at the time, they created a counterculture movement against the regime. This counterculture that emerges has several social functions, and I think it is critical to see this. And you saw it in the film, Wild Tango, Tango Feroz, but it allowed youth to create a space of their own, free from censorship. It challenged the culture and ideology of the junta. It provided an alternative form of collective identity in a country where social relations have become privatized and governed by the culture of fear and repression. And so it is critical for us to then think about how does that happen because it is not in a vacuum, right? And so it is clear that at the time, Youth received the bulk of the dictatorship's repression. 67% of the desaparecidos were between the ages of 18 and 30. So youth created a cultural space. And that is important also to think of because it was of their own through their consumption and production of rock music, which included concerts at Luna Park at least to a month and smaller venues. They had listening groups where young people got together to listen to records and discuss them as well. And I thought that is pretty powerful because these songs then were also texts for them to creatively think about the future that they wanted to have or imagine in Argentina. 
And so in addition to these listening parties, you had also rock magazines such as Expresso Imaginario, which contained letter pages where readers could share their thoughts. And so the attendees at the Luna Park concerts describe an atmosphere of communion and love. And I wanted to quote from Pablo Vila's work because he actually has some great quotes that give you a sense of what it was like to be there. It was as if Luna Park meant the place to meet rather than a weakness for going to see one another. We are us. We are here. The 12 or 14,000 people who filled the place with their presence seem to be saying. And then another quote where he writes, I don't know if it was because of the music or because you were predisposed, but it was as if you had the need to love the people and they loved you. It's that you looked at the people at the concerts and it seemed like everyone was beautiful because you were seeing people who looked at you like a human being looks. And I think for a lot of them, it was because the military regime did not see human or rather humane. Let's talk about their responses, the regime's response to what was happening. You have Amram Maceda in 1976, and he gave a speech at the Universidad de Salvador. And at the time, he expressed the regime's opposition to youth culture, or rather counterculture. He described the youth as becoming indifferent to our world and retreating into a private universe, converting themselves into a secret society, and spunning vertical relationships for horizontal ones. Eventually, also, he notes that this is dangerous because at the end of the day, if you think about what's happening to young people and what they want to see for him, it was like, eventually, they're not going to be pacifists. They're going to want to have a thrill of a terrorist faith. So again, you see the language also religiosity, because the regime was very Catholic, right? They would go disappear people, but before they would go and get the Eucharist. And so by 1977, the regime began targeting concert gatherings, throwing tear gas bombs and rounding up concert goers as well as sending threatening phone calls to discourage venue holders. Many groups broke up and musicians went abroad. Rock Nacional entered slumped in 1978. The regime enjoyed illusory, illusory uh, consent due to national fervor surrounding the World Cup and the brief import boom of the late 70s. Also, the disco boom did reach Argentina, filling radio space with English pop music. But then the movement revived again in 1979 due to several important concerts by Cerus Giran and Alamendra, which brought in tens of thousands of spectators. The renewal of the movement was met with more repression, which then led to bolder forms of dissidence, songs with direct references to the regime and political content. One of my favorites is Los Dinosaurios by Charlie Garcia. Charlie Garcia talks about the dinosaurios, which were the military men, because they dressed in green and it really reminded him of basically the terror. Imagine if you're a human being coexisting with a dinosaur, which even though there are certain religious groups who would like you to believe that that happened, it didn't. But the point of Charlie Garcia was saying that eventually they too will become extinct. So it was a way to give hope to people 
talking about the disappearances of his friends in the streets and they were taken. But one day, those who will disappear will be the dinosaurs. They will go and sing. The violence, the injustices, that too will die with them. So after the return of democracy in 1983, Charlie Garcia became a solo artist whose music became more politically defiant. I mean, Charlie Garcia is a, a fascinating case because he actually was able to exempt himself from joining the military because he acted like he was actually insane, right? And the idea was that he's actually the one who was in the right and of a sound mind. The craziness or the disorder was a result of those who were actually the ones who should be sectioned off and isolated, which basically would be the military. Charlie Garcia is one of the main figures of the Rock Nacional movement. He founded three of the most popular bands of the 70s and 80s, Sui Giran, as I mentioned, La Maquina para Se Pajaritos, and Seru Giran. Seru Giran was also one of the most successful. Each band's music incorporated distinct styles and sounds. Sui Giran was mostly influenced by the Beatles, but varied from unplugged sound to traditional rock. La Maquina and Seru, they were a little bit different, because they drew on more progressive lyrics and symphonic sounds. After the return of democracy in 1983, though, Garcia developed a solo artist, and the music, again, was more stronger, was louder. He actually wanted to do a recreation of throwing dolls in one of his concerts at Luna Park to show and kind of mimic what happened with the death flights, but he fell and it was considered to be too traumatizing. But that's how his mind works, right? Then you have Espineta. And he's considered also with Charlie, one of the fathers of Rock Nacional. He found the Alamendra, Pecado Rabioso, Invisible, and Spinetta J. Almendra, which was from 1969, was one of the first groups to compose songs entirely in Spanish, performing no covers. And this was revolutionary at the time. And Pecado Rabioso introduced a more hard rock metal sound to the genre. Now, Leon Gieco is also an important figure. He was born in 1951 in Santa Fe and at 18 traveled to Buenos Aires and became involved in the rock music internationally. Part of this was due to a proliferation of bands that started up following a wave of cultural positivism and hope. Part of this was also due to the media attention garnered by the Festival of Solidarity. But for me, it was thinking about the way youth counterculture gets created in the midst of crisis, especially for me, having grown up in the 80s with hip hop, I understood this connection. And I guess this is where I make a parallel in my own work between Rock Nacional and hip hop with Sonic Graffiti. But it's important to also think about the fluidity of Rock Nacional. And while so many bands changed in relatively short period of time, they were dynamic. They were trying to find the sense of self. But then you have all these post-dictatorial bands like Sodesterio, Los Fabuloso Cadillac, La Versi Vergarabá, and they were more commercial or less than their earlier counterparts. But it wasn't that they were more political or less political than their predecessors. And I think it's just that Rock Nacional becomes a soundtrack for a nation that is constantly 
fighting against itself. It's the worst and the best in many ways, or at least that's how they describe it in Argentinidad al Palo, which is the song by Bersuit Bergarabá that details all the ways in which Argentina is different and at the same time the quintessential Latin American story. Thinking about the dirty war really had me going back to the ideas put forth by the concepts or theories of historical trauma which is as defined by Dr. Karina Walters as an event series of events perpetrated against a group of people and their environment, namely people who share specific group identity with genocidal or ethnocidal intent to systematically eradicate them as a people or eradicate their way of life. We saw it with colonization, right? Where there's a cultural genocide where you They would steal children. There was marginalization from white society, poor communication, discrimination. There was low employment, poverty, poor education. And that led to alcohol and substance abuse epidemics, domestic violence. This kind of creates the groundwork for crime, for pathologies, self-harm. You start seeing it all. And this is also because of the impact of wars. And so if you think about the indirect pathway of transition, so you start thinking about how the genocides, the aftermath of these events connect to our current situation. And if you look at the region, you see the economic disadvantage. You see extra household responsibilities, experiences of regret, feelings of hurt between public and private life. Getting caught in family conflict, there is social exclusion. And how do these affect? Well, at the end of the day, these manifestations may include mistrust, mistrust of healthcare, legal, and educational systems, higher rates of risk behavior such as alcohol and drug abuse, mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, and suicide, violent behavior, homicide, and domestic violence, higher rates of chronic diseases. Historical trauma is the cumulative exposure to traumatic events that not only affect the individual exposed, but continue to affect subsequent generations. The untreated trauma in the present is passed on to the child through the attachment process and implicit or explicit messages around the world. Cultural trauma is an attack on the fabric of a society, affecting the essence of the community and its members. Historical trauma is the cumulative exposure of traumatic events, that affects an individual and continues to affect subsequent generations. Intergenerational trauma occurs when trauma is not resolved, subsequently internalized, and passed from one generation to the next. Present trauma is what today's youth are experiencing on a daily basis, and the story, unfortunately, repeats itself. So 
if we look at all the ways in which these countries have survived and become, then you understand why youth are particularly always at risk in these places because it is not culturally safe to assume that everyone within a group or community or family has been impacted in the same way or that they believe the same thing or by the same experiences as others. And this is why we can overlook resilience, strength, and persistence of culture in individuals and communities. But we resist and we are resilient through our creation. So the idea of intergenerational trauma can pathologize certain parenting practices, particularly around corporal punishment, but also how we think about crime and punishment in the nation, right? So on a personal level and on a very public level, violence then gets used as a protective factor. And so we start thinking about violence as also a way to show love in personal relations and also public ones because every military person claims that the violence that they inflicted onto the nation was out of a love for it. And so our behaviors and actions have to align sometimes with the powerful in order to survive. But this is what's great about popular culture. It also allows the very tools that are used to kind of chip away at our sense of self and health get weaponized and we create and we tell our own stories through it. 